Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. All right. So yeah, we, we ended up dividing 1 Corinthians 11 into two because it was two very unique topics, two uh, a little heavier topics. Last week we were talking about the whole head covering thing and what that meant culturally, what that means for us today. And now we're going to talk about uh, what Paul is writing in the second half of this letter. From chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians all the way through to chapter 14, Paul actually is addressing one singular topic in a number of different ways. He's, he's addressing uh, or he's giving instructions for what Christian worship is supposed to look like. So today's message is going to focus on the Lord's Supper, which we typically call communion. We're going to use those two terms, the Lord's Supper and communion, interchangeably today, just so that we understand, just, I'm just saying that now so we understand kind of what I'm saying when I go back and forth between the two. So we ended at verse 16 last week, and, and starting now in verse 17, Paul begins this section by showing his disapproval for how the Corinthians were approaching communion or the, the Lord's Supper. And here's what he says. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. So the problem is that when the Corinthians meet as a church, it does more harm than good. Man, what a dubious reputation for any church to have. When they get together, it gets nasty. Why is that? Why is this happening? Why is it doing more harm than good when they're together? Because this church has divisions among them. Division is the exact opposite of everything that a church is meant to be. God's church is all about oneness and unity under Christ. A couple weeks ago, we read a verse in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 17 that said, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. This passage refers specifically to the unity that we are meant to experience through taking communion together. In Ephesians 4, verse 3 and 4, it says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. So Christ's church, his body, isn't a collection of individuals who all get to do their own thing, but rather we are one body that Christ himself has bound together. And now we have one mind and one spirit, and it's what Christ has instilled in each and every one of us. Acts 4 verse 32 describes the early church saying, all the believers were of one heart and one mind. These descriptions to me just reveal the beauty of unity. But the church in Corinth was suffering from division. So we'll get to the cause of that division in just a moment, but there's a very curious verse first. Verse 19 says this, No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Such an interesting verse because we, we, we read this passage. It's a very familiar passage, especially the part that we're going to get to here in a few minutes. But then you read this. It says there have to be differences among you. Like God has to reveal his approval and, and disapproval right now, right here. So the question that I, I thought of is when I read this is, is Paul saying that the divisions are necessary because it reveals who God approves of and who he doesn't approve of? I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? 
Why would Paul say something like this? So earlier in the series, we mentioned that Paul was a man who lived a very motivated and focused life because he believed that Jesus's return was very near. So because he believed that it was very near, he lived motivated to follow God obediently and, and eagerly right away. But he also knew that with Jesus's impending return, there also was judgment that was going to come. So it's totally possible that the division in the Corinthian church and God's approval of how some were behaving and, how, and his disapproval of others was perhaps an early sign to Paul of the final judgment of Jesus that was yet to come. Just like it was then in the, in the Corinthian church, one group with God's approval and one group without God's approval, so it will be at the end of days when Christ comes again. God will approve of some saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And to others, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. That shows approval and disapproval, does it not? So perhaps the division in the church here in Corinth was an early sign of the final judgment of Christ that was yet to come. But we'll come back to this in just a moment. For now, as we continue on with this passage, Paul gets to the heart of the issue in this Corinthian church. Verse 20. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Aha. So here's the real problem. Here's the cause of the division that Paul mentioned earlier. When this church gets together for the Lord's Supper, it is done all wrong. Just like in most churches today, the Corinthian church was made up of people, some who were very wealthy, some who were very poor, and everyone in between. There was a lot of diversity, economically speaking, in this church. The Lord's Supper at that time was literally a supper, an entire meal. And bread and wine were taken during that meal to help remember Christ's sacrifice, just like we take bread and the cup during communion to remember Christ for the same reason, his sacrifice for us. These meals, these Lord's Supper meals, were often hosted in the homes of the rich because their homes were larger and they could accommodate a larger group of people so that they could all be together. However... Here's the complication. In those days, the rich, they didn't have to work nearly as hard. They had people doing stuff for them. And the poor, they were trying to eke out a living. And they had to work long hours just to make ends meet. Because of that, the rich, who didn't have to work as long, they got impatient waiting for poor members of the church to show up to this Last Supper meal. And when their impatience got the best of them, they decided, ah, whatever, let's just go for it. And they started eating without waiting for the whole church. The poor people would finally show up later in the evening and there wouldn't be any food left for them, yet the rich had eaten to excess. And then the two rhetorical questions that Paul fires off in verse 22 is his way of telling these impatient rich people two things. He tells them first, hey, fill your bellies at home, okay? Not at the Lord's Supper. That's not what this is about. And your choice to eat without waiting for everyone to arrive shows that you don't care about God or his church, and you've even humiliated the poor in how you've behaved towards them. Why would some people in the church eat 
without waiting for the whole church to arrive. And then gorge themselves to boot. Because their heart and their understanding for the significance of what Christ has instilled in the Last Supper was missing. So let's just tie a few thoughts together from what we've read so far. Paul said in verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So there, these are the differences that I believe Paul is talking about. It's the motives of people's hearts as they approach the Lord's Supper. Some do it with no concern for the Lord or for the Lord's people, but only for themselves, right? Others, they come to the Lord's Supper to remember And to honor their Savior who gave his life so that they could be called a church under his name. Those are two very different hearts. Two very different motives. Wouldn't you agree? And this is why Paul could say then in verse 20. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Because it doesn't commemorate him. It doesn't honor him. It's not about him or his church or his sacrifice. You've made it all about you. What you could eat, what you could get out of it, what, how you could satisfy yourself. And Christ has been forgotten in the very meal that we are supposed to remember him with. The rich who ate the best food and the most food were not being considerate of the poor. And they had revealed that they had not gathered for the Lord's Supper, but just to gratify their own desires. There's never honor for Christ when we put ourselves ahead of anyone. I mean, that, and that applies... Like literally to any situation in life, if I choose to put myself ahead of someone at the baseball field in some way or at the grocery store or in my family, that's already lousy character enough. But when that character then spills over and I put myself ahead of someone in God's church, oh man, man, that stinks. And my heart needs a huge renovation because something is not right in me. If I choose to put myself ahead of someone else in God's family. Having a heart of love for Jesus and acting considerately towards one another as a church. That's what reflects the love of Christ that is found in the gospel message. That heart of love for Jesus and for others is always the most important thing. It's more important than just believing the right things or having theology or doctrine figured out because you can know stuff without loving people. But Christ says that love is what satisfies the law, right? Love is what makes everything come together because Christ himself is love. Man, when we get that heart... When, when that heart of love is what motivates us each and every day, I think that's when the gospel has really grabbed hold of us and is starting now to direct our lives, right? And suddenly, the mundane things in life, the things that are more like ritual or tradition, when we have this heart for Christ that is fueling our desires and our motives and our actions, all of a sudden, all these other things that can just become rituals, they take on this this sacred and beautiful meaning because we're like, oh Lord, you've shown me your heart in what this is. It's not just us going through the motions, but it's us actually engaging with you and engaging with one another in the way that you are asking us to because you've modeled for us through your character what the church is supposed to be like and now we're starting to get a glimpse of that. And it's beautiful Because it's so much more satisfying to do things with a right understanding and a right heart than just to do them because that's what everyone else is doing, right? Or that's what we've always done. 
We get to see the big picture. And it's, it's just marvelous when God does that. But many in Corinth just didn't have this heart understanding at this point. That's why Paul, he pauses in the middle of this thing to take time to teach us and them what the Lord's Supper is really all about. And here's where we get to this familiar passage, starting at verse 23. Oh, sorry, I missed one. There we go. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This reminder and teaching is crucial, not only for the Corinthians in their context, but also for us today. Communion, or the Lord's Supper, is us as Jesus' church, remembering what Jesus did so that we could belong to him and even be called his church. Communion brings us back to the heart of the gospel that we've been talking about. That word gospel, it means good news, right? The good news is Jesus, our only Hope died for us. And verse 26 says that when we take the bread and the cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. We're testifying once again that our only hope is Jesus Christ. We're refocusing on him yet again. His sacrifice, or he sacrificed his body and he shed his blood. This sacrifice sealed the covenant promise from God to us, allowing us to be forgiven And redeemed, renewed, saved, transformed, and and spiritually born again. And in this forgiven, redeemed, renewed, saved, transformed, and born again life, none of us is above anyone else, are we? Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned. All is all. We're all in this boat together. We've all fallen short of the standard that God has set. He said, sinless life is what I desire. That's what the standard is. But now everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of that standard. But then the hope that comes is, is that in Romans 12 or 10, 13, it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We all sinned, yet all of us can call on the name of Jesus and receive forgiveness for our sins. You see, the cross, friends, the sacrifice of Jesus is the great equalizer, isn't it? We're all on even ground at the cross. The foot of the cross is level. There is no one who is above or below anyone else. We're all in the same boat. So then when you see the, the attitude that the Corinthians had where they didn't wait and they didn't prioritize, they didn't love, they didn't care for their fellow man, they were unevening the playing surface in their own favor. Back to this passage here for just a moment, this, this uh, communion passage that Paul is telling us about. We see that Paul is quoting Jesus, okay? If you look in your Bible, if you have a Bible where everything that Jesus says is in red letters, here we are in the middle of a letter to the Corinthians, and there's red letters there. That's pretty amazing that Paul is quoting something that Jesus said. So this is of, of specific note for us, okay? Jesus said, do this... Eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of me. Eat this meal in remembrance of Jesus. 
The word remembrance. I wanted to look at that one because I think remembrance is important. Remembrance, if we understand that word, it helps us to understand what we're supposed to be doing when we're taking this meal together. The word remembrance, it doesn't seem to mean what most churches think it means. Okay? A lot of times, and and in churches, most churches that I've been in, it seems that communion is, is something that we're supposed to do, or people are under the impression that we're supposed to do this with a very somber and solemn attitude. A lot of times it feels like we treat communion as another funeral for Jesus. Did you know that the word remembrance doesn't mean somber or solemn? Remembrance here in this passage is the Greek word anamnesis, which means affectionate recollection affectionate recollection and to be affectionate means to show or indicate affection or love for someone that's how we're supposed to remember Jesus we're not mourning Jesus during communion right we're not beating ourselves up spiritually and saying oh Lord I'm so unworthy I'm such a sinner I've done so many bad things that's not what Jesus is inviting us to do it says here that we're supposed to fondly remember him And his wonderful gift of grace with a heart of love. I think about how I show affection to people around me. Now, I'm just going to share a couple examples. You tell me which one of these two greetings, if I were to offer it to you, which one would you say is more affectionate? I could say, hello, Bruce. You're here. That's good. Or... I could say, good morning, Bruce. Good to see you, my friend. I'm so glad you're here. Which one shows more affection? The second one. Yeah, obviously, right? Yeah, obviously. Okay. So, and I even think about this with my wife. You know, on, uh, especially on a Saturday morning when we get to sleep in for like a, a few extra minutes and this kind of thing, and we don't have an alarm clock that's waking us up. You know, I could, I could roll over and I could say, good morning, babe. I could extend my hand and give her a hearty handshake in the morning. (laughs) I could do that. I could ask her, how did you sleep? Or I could say, morning, babe. I love you. (laughs) I'm embarrassing everyone today. This is awesome. Our kisses are not that quiet. But you know what, friends? Like, that second one, that's affection, right? Right? Like, we love each other, so we're going to greet each other like we're actually glad. Like, oh good, she's still here. I'm glad. This is wonderful, right? Like, we're excited about what the relationship that we have means. And I think it's okay for us to understand, to show affectionate recollection for Jesus, is to be excited about what the relationship is that we have with him. Would you agree? All right, okay, just checking. I just want to make sure. Jesus himself invites us to affectionately remember him during communion. So I have a question that I'd love to ask you, and I want you to answer out loud, okay? If loving affection is what Jesus is inviting us to have as we remember his sacrifice, are there any other appropriate emotions or responses that we could also show as we take communion together? Okay, I will ask that again. Thank you, Denise. So, if affectionate recollection is what Jesus is inviting us to have 
when we take communion, are there any other emotional responses or indications, maybe on our face, for example, that we could show when we're taking communion together? This is a tricky question. That's probably why you guys are all saying, Jeff, we're just going to wait for you to answer. Okay, well, I'll ask you this. Do you think it's okay to be happy when we take communion? Okay, I'm just checking. Do you think it's okay to experience joy? Or even when, we, when we're affectionately remembering what Christ went through? For us, could we experience tears of joy? Yeah, I think so. I mean, here we go right now, right? Is it okay to be thankful or to have gratitude for Jesus and what he's done? Okay, keep answering. I, we need this affirmative response. Seriously. We need to agree to these things. Otherwise, we're unsure of what, about what this passage is saying. Okay, this is a bit different. Is it okay to smile? Okay. How about, can you be glad when you're taking communion? I, I think so. What about, would you call communion a celebration? I would. I mean, that's what I think it means. Actually, if you look at the word sacrament, sacrament is interchangeable in a lot of places in the Bible for the word celebration. Kind of interesting. Would you say that communion is an act of praise and worship? Okay. Would you also give yourself during communion to be in wonder or amazement about who Jesus is and what he's done? Okay, I agree. And I think that we need to really understand this point because if Jesus is inviting us to have this sort of experience with him through his meal, his supper, I want to do it his way. I don't want to do it my way. I don't want to like make it less amazing than it should be. Does that make sense? Quick recap here, okay? So, verse 20, or 17 to 22, it showed us the problem. The self-serving action that some people had, and then they were, dis, they were not caring about the significance of the Lord's Supper, or caring about the people that they were supposed to be observing the Lord's Supper with. Verse 23 to 26, when we look at that word remembrance there especially, we understand that communion is, about to, is supposed to be affectionate remembrance lovingly remembering the amazing work that Christ did for us. So let's continue on here with the last few verses. 27 says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So Paul is teaching us here about the consequences of partaking in the Lord's Supper, but doing it all wrong, like the rich people in the Corinthian church had been doing, okay? He says that if we carry on doing during communion in a way that dishonors God, we are guilty, we are as guilty of, as those who actually participated in crucifying Jesus. So now comes the recommendation from Paul so that we can avoid sinning against God and his church in that way. Verse 28, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So we avoid the consequences of approaching communion all wrong by first examining ourselves. But the question is, what are we examining ourselves for? We're being told here to look, look inside of our hearts for two things. In the context of this passage, we see two main things. Number one, 
Are we in right relationship with Christ? We should be. We want to be. That's the goal, right? So you ask yourself, am I in right relationship with Christ? If these Corinthian uh, aristocrats, if they would have done that, if they would have stopped and asked, am I doing this because my heart is for Jesus, or am I doing this simply because I can't wait to fill my gut, maybe they would have paused and made a different decision, right? You ask that question. And then the next question is, are we in right relationship with God's family? We ask this question because we are about to proclaim the Lord's death the gospel to one another. It says, whenever you take this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Can we do that when we don't even wait for people to come? No. So we have to make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord's people. Can we cling to hope in Christ, yet be at odds with the people of his church? It wouldn't make sense to maintain unforgiveness or ill will towards another person in God's church, yet declare through communion how thankful we are that God has given us forgiveness. Right? What an what a oxymoron or whatever, a contradiction that is. I can't remember the right term. You don't want to say, I'm doing this to honor Jesus, yet at the same time have ill will towards someone that also belongs to Jesus. So Paul explains why examining ourselves in these ways is so necessary. He says, verse 29, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So just as the context of this passage has suggested all the way along, the main issue is that we approach the Lord's Supper in the proper manner. That means that we discern the body of Christ. We acknowledge that This is not just another meal, but a meal taken to remember all that Jesus has done for us. If we take communion carelessly without thinking about what we're doing and why we're doing it, we bring judgment from Christ onto ourselves. Apparently, here in the Corinthian church, this had gotten out of hand so much that God's judgment was manifesting itself on some believers as they were becoming weak and sick and some were falling asleep. To fall asleep here means to die. Because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But take heart, friends, okay? Because Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, I correct and I discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. See, indifference towards Christ was the issue with this meal, right? Instead of being dedicated to him, And and choosing to honor him, they were indifferent and they made a poor choice. So this heart thing that we've talked about so often, once again, it's all about the heart. If, If our heart is not right with God or with God's people, we can't honor him in the meal that we take to remember him. Interestingly, many churches have interpreted this section of this chapter, I believe, incorrectly. They say that self-examination is for the purpose of dealing with unconfessed sin between us and God. But I have three reasons why that interpretation doesn't make sense according to what we've read here today. Number one, this passage never once talks about unconfessed sin as the issue. Never once. It never, it never says that, okay? So when we read this in context and we look back for anything to do with an unconfessed sin before we take communion, it's not in there. Number two, it explicitly says, discern the body of Christ. 
which once again points to understanding the difference or distinguishing between the Lord's Supper and just a regular meal. This is not just macaroni and cheese that we're about to take. This is a big deal. We are approaching God's table. We are remembering and commemorating him through his, because of his sacrifice through eating the bread and drinking the cup. And number three, we take communion to remember that Jesus deals with our sins because we can't. We don't have to clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. Jesus came to love on and save sinners. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. It's good, of course, to want to confess our sins, to not let things stand between us and Jesus, but communion isn't for those who are sinless enough to take it. Imagine if that's what it was. None of us would deserve it. Communion is for those who are willing to admit that they need a Savior to deal with their sin for them. I take communion because I'm thankful that God has shown me that I can't approach him through my own righteousness, but through his righteousness, he has allowed me to be in his presence. That's what communion is, friends. So we examine ourselves to make sure that we have trusted in God before participating in his supper. We examine ourselves to make sure that we don't despise or are living in disunity with anyone in his family. And if we realize that one of those things is an issue, we stop and we say, Jesus, I need your help to deal with this so that I can do this the right way. I don't just want to steam ahead. I actually want to honor you more than anything else. Verse 31. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined in that we will not, so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. Paul gives us a, just a beautiful lift here at the end of this passage. He reminds us that it's good for us to be discerning about ourselves, to examine our own hearts and to make the necessary corrections. If we do that, then God doesn't have to bring discipline and correction on us. But even if he does need to bring correction into our lives, it's so that we will be disciplined now in this life and not condemned eternally when Jesus comes again. See, this is the heart of a good heavenly father. He disciplines us now, helps us to develop character so that we will live for him and not just live a heinous life where at the end he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Last two verses. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Finally, here's a, a quick dose of instruction of how the Lord's Supper should be observed. Do it together. Make sure everyone is, is, has arrived before you start. Don't come to stuff yourselves Eat something at home first to make sure that there's food for everyone. It's not about you. It's about the whole body of Christ. And if you do things at the Lord's Supper the right way, God won't need to judge. And perhaps there was more that Paul wanted to say about the Lord's Supper, but this is what he needed to get off his chest right here, right now. This is the most important part. So friends, I, I love this teaching because I feel like it just, it's so practical and so forthright. I feel like we're able to debunk some of the weird things that we've made communion about and just see like 
here's what Jesus says we're supposed to be thinking and feeling and doing as we observe his meal. Tonight at the rally, our church's worship and prayer night, we're going to be taking communion together. And I would encourage all of you to come. Man, if you, if you have other plans, I totally understand it. Don't feel guilty. But if you have an open evening and you want to try to experience Christ in a, in a way where we take a teaching that we heard this morning and we apply it immediately to what our church is doing tonight, man, it would just be fabulous. We'd love to have you come. God deserves our worship. And it's a powerful experience for his body to come together to pray. And when we take communion, maybe it will be with a fresh, new vibrancy that we haven't experienced before. Maybe it'll just bring a new understanding on an old practice where we were, were doing what we, taught, we were taught to do since we were kids. Maybe it'll be the most significant communion that we've ever taken together because now we see the heart of Jesus in what's going on. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this passage. Lord, I love that when we go to your word, we see the truth. There it is. It's, it's in black and white, and it's even there in red. Jesus, your voice and your words are powerful, and they show up in the most beautiful places. Thank you, Jesus, for, for helping us to understand the significance of your sacrifice. Thank you for helping us to understand that you are good in all your ways. Thank you for showing us that how we remember you is also up to you. And we just want to do that. So, Lord, as, as, we, as we continue to follow you as your church, as we do our very best to understand what your word says, I pray that we will continue to approach it in humility and say, yeah, Jesus, whatever you want is, is more important. I know this might be new, this might be different, but Jesus, I'm in favor of everything that you have for me because you're the Lord of this church. You're the leader, not me. Amen.